The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who are at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 63 is something like, what does morality look like after the death of God? Along the way, we'll also consider what philosophical work literature can do that might not be available to the typical philosophical essay or treatise. For this discussion, we read Cormac McCarthy's 2005 novel, No Country for Old Men. You can join the discussion, get the text, and read loads of supplemental material at partiallyexaminedlife.com. I'm Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. This is Mark Lintonmeyer in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. And this is Eric Petrie in Lansing, Michigan. Welcome, Eric. Welcome. Good to have you. Thanks. This is fun. So, Eric, uh, Dylan said you were actually using this book to teach some, right? What, like having them look at the techniques and say, you don't have to use punctuation? <laughs> Wasn't, doesn't need an apostrophe. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you don't That's need quotation marks. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a good point. Yeah, he's a, not a good model in that respect. No apostrophes. He doesn't like that. You have a hard time figuring out in a McCarthy novel who's talking. I often have to try to figure it out, you know, which speaker in the dialogue is whom. It's a, it's a mess. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I've used, actually, I've taught this book for four or five years. Actually, not in a, a writing class, in a course on Nietzsche and Kant and contemporary political philosophy. Mm. And it's a fantastic book for discussion. Well, and in contrast, so we just did Voltaire's Candide last time, which uh-huh. that is a philosopher who also writes literature, and he's not so subtle about the way that he puts the philosophy in there. Whereas McCarthy, like, at least I look for interviews of him, and he doesn't like to talk about his work. He doesn't sound very philosophical when you talk to him. He just (laughs) is kind of like, I'm a person, you know, kind of one of Nietzsche's ideals of somebody that works by instinct. Like, I don't read other current (laughs) literature now. Some of those classics, I don't understand them. But he, you know, has developed this unique style that he's very famous for and obviously has a great attention to detail and skill and... You know, I don't know how much philosophy background he has, but he certainly smuggles in into the mouths of characters and in some of the situations, you know, stuff at least as philosophical as what was going on in Candide, which is a lot of bad things are happening, but it's the best possible worlds, but bad things are happening, you know. <laughs> he looks to me to be very well read. Partly, I think that's just the subtlety of the situations he sets up, knowing the moral dilemmas of, say, Kant and Nietzsche and a little bit of Heidegger. When I teach no Country for Old Men, it looks like this was a story that was written to explore those issues. And I, it's so crafted that way that I suspect he's well-read and just makes it a habit of putting that all into everyday common speech, when it's there, at least. 
Yeah, it did strike me as a lot like some of the existentialist novels, but Americanized or Texanized. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the most obvious cases in the novel, No Country for Old Men, is when Moss, the welder, is talking to the 16-year-old runaway and trying to explain to her why it is that she's making a mistake thinking that going to California, she can start over. There's a kind of extended conversation that I think is kind of straight out of Nietzsche, talking about what it means, what your life is made out of. It's made out of the days it's made out of. That, to me, without using philosophy speak, is, I think, very serious philosophically. And even if he, you know, hasn't read Nietzsche, he may be just converging on the same sorts of themes, right? He's obviously reflecting on something in this novel. Right, absolutely. And that should be the test of, sometimes I think, should be the test of good philosophy. Can you put it in regular terms that people can understand? Whereas, you know, I could spend a lot of time with with Hegel and the master-slave relationship and things of this, and then I might find six months later, like, I don't know if I actually can explain that or even know what the hell was going on exactly. At some level, there's some interaction, but that's not an actual historical fact, and it's not a psychological description. So something that can seem very profound can float away when when it's in that language. But when you put it in a concrete situation like this, one of the powers of this is that even with these ethical dilemmas, it's much different if you're giving an abstract, there's a guy on the train track and you can save him by pushing another guy on the train track. That kind of thing, as opposed to this is a real character that you know the person's situation, you can put yourself in the person's place and then ask the ethical dilemma from that perspective. I think that's completely right. I think he's the kind of guy who is well-read. I don't exactly know what he's read because he won't tell anybody and he doesn't quote except in the the epigrams and the beginnings of his books. There are some interesting ones. But I think he's someone who completely agrees with what you just said, that philosophy, to be truthful – has to be on the street. And so he quotes people that he listens to in the bars in El Paso. Yeah, and the point of departure for this novel is a very everyday concern. You know, you have this character, Bell, who's concerned about aging and regret. And that's sort of the initial surface theme. And and of course, it goes deeper. Do we want to give a quick synopsis? Or do we want to expect that everybody's at least read the book or probably seen the movie? I'd give a synopsis because if you've seen the movie, you haven't exactly read the book. Right. Well, the book, I think, is made up of two parts. There is Sheriff Bell's italicized introduction to each of the 13 chapters. And that's one monologue that's continuous, it looks like, but that's been broken up as an introduction, usually just a couple of pages long, to each of the chapters. Then a separate story told in the third person. Of course, the monologue is first person. The The story is told in third person of this drug deal gone bad in the uh, Texas desert and the consequences of a 36-year-old welder named Moss, the consequences of his finding the money, $2.4 million, which he picks up, or actually that's one of the first dilemmas, will he pick it up? And when he picks it up, his life changes because he's chased by the people of both sides of the failed drug deal. And the story is the consequences of that, which happened pretty quickly. And did I hear that this was written as a screenplay? I saw that as like a comment by somebody on a board somewhere. and I, was... I don't think so. <clears throat> okay, all right. It has the quality of a novel, but it's clearly, it was written with the screen in mind, it seems. Oh, okay. I mean, that's not unusual for McCarthy's work. It's not a stream of consciousness uh, in terms of the consciousness of the characters. There are lots of authors that will then throw in backstory, 
flashbacky kind of things in it. And then the character is jerked back to the present moment as if everything that was being said, which is not all in one space, is going on in the mind of the character. It just seems I, in the other McCarthy novels that I had read, there's not a lot of dwelling on what characters are thinking at the moment. It might be descriptions of what they're seeing, but that would be the same thing you would see if you're standing there. And then it's descriptions yeah. of what they're actually doing with their hands. And that yeah. is just completely all over this, that yes... Bell is talking at the beginning, and so that's kind of what's going on in his mind. But even that, that's him talking to somebody, presumably, or his memoir or something like that. It's all yeah. external. And this could be just you know, an existentialist kind of approach that everybody is this closed, unknowable unit. And so as a storyteller, I'm not going to pretend I can put you in somebody's head because I can't do that. I'm going to let you sort of look at them and see what they're doing and what people are saying around, and that's it. I like that. I, I like the idea that what's inside is definitely a puzzle. But the only problem I have with, if I understood what you said about existentialism, is I think a good bit of the novel is meant for you to figure out what's in their head. That's part of the puzzling way in which he writes, as opposed to it being something you can never reach. He's trying to set up the issue of answering the question, for instance, in the case of the, you know, the real villain hero of the book, Sugar, what makes him who he is? What's in his mind? How does he understand the world? So that's the only thing I would add. That It's not that it's a blank that nobody can reach, their inner thoughts. I think he wants you to try to put it together. Yeah, so we should say that the, the secondary text that is all lurking here in our, in our understanding is Eric's essay on this. Uh, yeah, I think two years ago I gave it as a lecture in St. John's out in uh, Santa Fe, and then I also gave it a few months later as a lecture in a political theory colloquium here on campus at Michigan State. It's a promise keeping after the death of God, no country for old men. Right. By the way, if we're giving a synopsis, there would be at least two things one should add. That story of the failed drug deal could be just a pedestrian detective story or a shoot 'em up but I think what makes it especially interesting is two additional things. That one side of the drug deal, the American side, has this loose cannon, Anton Sugar. And he, I think, is an extremely interesting character who rises above anything that would just be part of the regular drug scene. And so trying to figure him out is, I think, really one of the big purposes of this book, trying to present Sugar's new way of thinking in the world. And then secondly, Sheriff Bell, who represents the World War II generation, he's the guy doing the, the monologue that introduces each chapter. He's also a character in the story. And he never really accomplishes anything very much. He's always on the scene too late to make a difference. And at the end of the story, he chooses to quit. And I think the monologue is an explanation of why he chose to quit. So then just to finish, the story is the failed drug deal, the 36-year-old welder Moss, and his decision to take the money from the drug site that he found in the desert, and the consequences for his life. But it's also trying to figure out who this Anton Sugar is, as a new man on, in the new world after the death of God. And it's also some reflection on Sheriff Bell and the old world that's passing away and why he quit. At least those things. So we're not going to make you give your whole essay here. Yeah. So yeah, this paper of yours, Eric, we can make available. I understand it's not been published yet, so we can't just link to it on the web. And you're seeking publications. We can't actually publish it ourselves. But we can make it available on the member portion of our site. Yet another reason people to go sign up for that. Great. I did find it very interesting looking at that, just the way that you oriented it. I knew this was taking place somewhere in the early 80s, late yes. 70s, right? It's actually 1980. 
1980. Is that actually stated, or how did you Yeah, know that? Uh, because uh, Sugar throws the coin in the air when he runs into mm. that proprietor at the gas station, and he says this coin has been traveling 26 years to get here, and he gives the date of the coin. The coin is 1958. So it's not like at the very beginning of the book it says... It's 1980, and here's things that are going on. Like, that's not the style of the book. (laughs) That is not the style. It just, here's some action, here's some people doing some stuff. But they refer a couple times to, like, oh, were you in Vietnam or something? And I was trying to figure out from there what the timeline was. But according to your paper here, that all the three younger main characters are Vietnam vets, and that explains really what the death of God is for that. That's such a horrible part of the American experience, and especially the experience of the people that had been there. That explains quite a bit why they act the way they do, whereas Sheriff Bell from the previous generation was a World War II guy. And, you know, so just knowing that, since those have such iconic meanings for us, you know, World War II was the good war. It was the morally clear war that we knew what we were supposed to be doing, and Vietnam was not so. Right. There's a very interesting orientation that comes from the Bell monologue. And that's where Sheriff Bell tells a story about his being in World War II. So mm-hmm. that's his experience. He's dealing with all these Vietnam vets, both Sugar and then Carson Wells, the hitman sent to get Sugar, the, the hitman, and then also the welder, Moss. Those three are all Vietnam veterans. And then Bell talks about, I think his grandfather, actually I haven't figured this out, there's somebody in World War I who died as a young man. He talks about that guy in even higher terms. So the mm-hmm. farther you go back in American history, the more God there is, the more solid the belief. One of the things that Bell is reflecting on is his disappointment, right, and regret over his performance in World War II. He gets an award for heroism, but the true story that he tells his uncle, is that right? It's his uncle. Is that he actually ended up running from the Germans, and he's regretted that all his life. I think that's one of the sort of motivating features of this ongoing reflection of Bell. And then the other related one is his being disconcerted and afraid of... For one thing, the kind of new level of violence that people are seeing in the American Southwest with these drug cartels and this horrible violence, but also just the typical concerns of someone who is aging and seeing younger generations and the sense that they have no regard for tradition. So he mentions, you know, kids with green hair and wearing bones in their noses. (laughs) In a way, you know, he values the old tradition, but he comes to the conclusion that he's one of these newer people because I guess he failed to live up to his obligations towards his when he cut and run from the Germans. And on the one hand, he wants to live up to these older ideals, but he has this sense that he's failed to do that. Doesn't he in the end have a kind of self-loathing that neither Moss, neither the other three guys do? At least self-disappointment, maybe self-loathing is too high. Right. Because remember, he's still married, really happily married to someone who he considers his soul. So it can't be that bad to be in retirement with Loretta. But yeah, he's really disappointed, deeply disappointed. I think he concludes that he should have died staying with his men in Germany. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would have been the proper, honorable thing to have done. Mm, That's what he thinks his grandfather would have done. Exactly. So you would say that he wouldn't disagree that that's what he should have done given his own soul, but that he's disappointed in that characteristic of himself because he thinks he ought to be more like his grandfather? Well, I would say like many things in the book, it's ambiguous. He says, people think that I'm a man of a different time, but I'm a man of this time. Right. I think in that section, and he's basically saying, grandfather lived during a different time. He had a different way of dealing with things. And you might look back and think that 
I'm from a different generation, but I'm not. I'm I'm of this world now and not of some former world or some hypothetical world. And part of what he's doing there, he's reflecting right on his failure to pursue Shigur. And, you know, he retires and gives up on, on that instead of trying to pursue him to the, the bitter end. And he's sort of afraid of that in a way that echoes his fear in the dark in World War II while he was yeah. waiting for the Germans thinking that all of his men had already died. Right. He's repeating. Yeah. And that shows you how strange the moral principle is, because what Bell is struggling with is they had been defeated, and he had every reason to believe all his squad, they were dead. But he felt he had the obligation to stay there and die with them. So it's this weird thing, not just that he'd risk his life, because Bell is willing to risk his life like the best of them. But in this particular case, he expected they were all dead. And he left them. That's what upset Well, he does him. say, yeah, it's ambiguous, I think, about the dead because he says, and in my book, this is page 121, he says, I could hear some of our men groaning and I sure didn't know what I was going to do come dark. He stays with them until dark yeah. and then he runs. Yeah, that's good. And it's, I mean, he has the right to, presumably they're all close to death, but I think there's that uncertainty about whether he could have saved people may, may be part of his, his regret. Yeah. I think just to try to give some more precise definition to the death of God phrase, which is a Nietzschean phrase, and probably doesn't really, strictly speaking, fit, the main thing is a loss of faith. He sees what's happening with each generation, this is Bell, and himself as well, is a loss of faith in God, and therefore an inability to make promises that they keep to their death. And that's what he sees, all this strange stuff coming up which makes the world worse, he, I think, sees as a consequence of that loss of faith. Which I liked how this dovetailed the way it was described, I think, in your paper from what we were reading about in Candide, that Voltaire was a deist, that at least at that point, of course, everybody believed in God. You know, atheism was a, a hard-to-even-conceive position. So deism was kind of as liberal as the mainstream intellectuals got at that point uh, <laughs> because they didn't have necessarily Darwinist explanations and things to rule out those traditional teleological and cosmological arguments for the existence of God. So there's echoes of deism in here where Bell is talking to his uncle and they say something about, of course, you know, there is a God and created this, but you know, why isn't God doing anything about this suffering? Well, I don't think he really can. Like God is hands off. Yeah. And the fact that it's just then one step from that. So what you characterize, I think, is that that's how the people of that older generation, they still were raised with religion, and so they have to believe something like that and just be sort of disappointed by the fact that bad things are happening. But for the generation after that, that wasn't as thoroughly inculcated with a religious background, then it's just much easier for them to say, oh, I don't see the effects of God. There's all this suffering in the world. Therefore, there's no God. Why prevaricate and use apologetics and say, oh, there is a God, but he has to have all these limitations or something? Just cut it right off. Yeah, and, and religion is important here because for Nietzsche, it was really the primary mechanism of getting people to keep their promises. And promise is an important concept for Nietzsche. It's really about something that critically distinguishes human beings from animals. This ability, in, in a sense, it's something like will, which is to say, you can say, I will do this and then end up actually doing it in the future, which requires having a memory. People can go back and listen to our Genealogy of Morals podcast. He talks a lot about this at the very beginning of the first essay in Genealogy of Morality. So the idea is that you need some way to get human beings who are sort of instinctively forgetful, 
which is a, another important word for Nietzsche, but to remember enough to be able to keep their promises, to have a will. And that requires punishment, discipline. It requires all sorts of horrible things, torture and bloodshed. Nietzsche talks all about that. Religion is one of those mechanisms for doing that. And so when you lose God and you lose religion, that ability to make promises begins to fade. And then the question is, what could possibly ground that ability to make promises in the absence of God? Yeah, I really like that formulation. This prompt's exactly talking about when uh, Sugar kills Carla Jean, right? This is where he's explicitly saying, I made a promise to your dead husband that I would kill you if he didn't give me the money. He didn't give me the money and I killed him. Or no, he died. Sugar didn't kill him. He died and I'm going to kill you. That's right. Spoilers. Just, just... <laughs> wow. Yeah, Go back in time at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> stop and watch the movie at least. <laughs> at least, but uh, the movie's only good for the book. And yeah, the movie was very faithful in terms of the actual actions that went on, if I remember correctly. Until yeah, it gets right. to the end. It does alter quite a few important things at the end, but yeah. Well, I, it's been a long time since I saw it. I don't remember. There are two important things that are goofed up in the, or missing in the movie. There's no teenage runaway. It's a woman yeah. in the hotel. And I think it implies that he slept with a woman in the hotel. And I, in the book, he does not sleep with the runaway. And um, there's something else, too. I forgot the second one. <laughs> well, the way in which the narrative or the monologue from Bell works in the book is just not there in the movie. It sort of tells the part of the book that doesn't include that narrative. Yeah, it's just a little bit of voiceover. And there's some of there's some voiceover, and then some of it's turned into dialogue, right? Right. Yeah. Of course, all yeah. of, not all right. of it is there. Yeah, right. Exactly. There was one since you were talking earlier, Eric, about the time periods and the World War II and Vietnam perspective. I know toward the end, I think it's when Bell's talking with his uncle, where they bring up McCarthy's favored time. You know, where they bring up some horrible bit of violence in cowboy times by the by oh the yeah. Indians or something like that. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and I was a little unclear. I mean, it just. If overall the, the emphasis is supposed to be on how horrible 1980 with the death of God and the Vietnam experience is compared to the previous generations, you know, I don't know if he was just trying to put it in perspective to say, oh, but I also wrote Blood Meridian uh, and these other <laughs> books taking place in cowboy times where everything was much, much worse than any of this, or at least maybe that's the natural state of chaos to which things are returning. I like that idea. I think definitely McCarthy's point has got to be it was no less chaotic, at least in the West, in Texas, it was no less chaotic in the past than it is for Bell's time. That point, I think, is made in the book. Well, would you think that the origin of violence and the kinds of problems there have to do with the same kind of loss of God that we're saying is permeating this book, or loss of faith? You know, I don't think so. One of the difficulties of this book is you get Bell's account, and Bell's account is simpler, I think, in a lot of important ways than whatever would be McCarthy's view. And Bell's memory yeah. doesn't go back. I don't think he knows anything about Blood Meridian, though, though he knew the borderlands have always been tough. Yeah, and I think Bell, his position is something that you could easily make fun of, right? He's complaining about the younger generation, and he's taking the kinds of drug cartel violence that he's seeing as sort of emblematic of something really sinister. You know, a prophet of destruction is coming. And if there weren't this other story of a drug deal gone bad, you would just have Bell with his regret and his fear of the younger generation. And it might look like, you know, you could have written a novel that was basically very mournful and reflective. And instead, this is a novel about aging and regret, which is 
violent and raucous in many ways. So it's an interesting contrast between those two things. But I think Bell is not an entirely reliable narrator thematically. He's having his own specific reactions to what all of this stuff means, but I don't think we should take that as McCarthy's thesis about what it means. Right. Well, a lot of some of his introductions relate a couple of kind of cranky conservative anecdotes that he talks yeah. about abortion. You know, some woman on the plane was talking to me about how we need abortions, <laughs> we need abortions. And I said to her, well, don't worry about that. The way things are going, you'll be able to have abortions and your kids will be able to put you to sleep, too, when you're old. Ah. <laughs> And there's yeah, another one yeah. I had here. This is a uh, page 195 in mine. I had this questionnaire about what was the problem in teaching in the schools. And they came across these forms, these surveys. They'd been filled out and sent in across the country answering the questions. The biggest problem you could name was talking in class and running in the hallways, chewing gum, copying homework, things of that nature. So they got one of yeah. them forms that was blank, printed up a bunch of them, and sent them out to the same schools. 40 years later, here come the answers back. Rape, arson, murder, drug, suicide. Yeah, here's, here's another one at the very end, and I've mentioned this before, but these old people I talked to, if you could have told them that there would be people on the streets of our Texas towns with green hair and bones in their noses speaking a language they couldn't even understand, well, they just flat out wouldn't have believed you. What if you told them that it was their own grandchildren? Well, all of that is signs and wonders, and so on. I think it's a challenge to write a novel about an old man who is not content with the newer ways without making him seem like a ridiculous, cranky old man just complaining about stuff, right? He does try to connect the dots that he says, you know, the reason for the drug trade and why all this violence is happening is because they're consumers. And so that has to do with just the basic ennui, the basic dissatisfaction of the American teens and other folks that are consuming these things. And that is a direct cause of all this facilitating the horrible violence of amoral men. Even if those recreational drug users are not themselves the amoral beasts. Right. I'm, I'm saying McCarthy is successful in not portraying a character who's not simply a grumpy old man, even though he could have easily become that. And I like the way, you know, that one of the he calls it a breakdown in mercantile ethics when he's re <laughs> referring to Bell at times lapses into a more sophisticated way of speaking, which is always very interesting. And when he's, so he's talking about the, the drug deal gone wrong. And that I thought was a great phrase to put in Bell's mouth, breakdown in mercantile ethics. <laughs> I like that phrase, but it seemed totally out of character to me. It really, yeah. I rem it struck me. I, I remember it because it doesn't sound like his voice in any of the rest of the things that he's saying. You thought it was too sardonic or something? Not sardonic. It it just seemed like a turn of phrase that was very out of step with his way of speaking uh -huh. in the rest of both his first person and third person rhetoric. Yeah, it's a little bit more sophisticated than he's usually speaking. In another conversation with somebody, he asks about mammon from the Bible. And he says, mm -hmm. I, I think he says something like, I need to read up about mammon because he thinks right. money is ruining the world. That seems more in character on this point. Yeah. I mean, here, then that when he talks about the breakdown in mercantile ethics, that's near where he's talking about the green hair and the nose bones. And he's talking about how when sir and ma'am go out the window, and I think, Mark, you already mentioned this, but that basic discourtesies and, you know, little smaller cultural failures will pave the way for something far more sinister, which is another interesting idea there. You know, you could call that a very grumpy old man thesis, or you could say, well, actually, there's a lot of truth to that. Because what is, you know, when people stop saying sir and ma'am and little courtesies aren't observed, you could call it a failure of cultural transmission or the newer generation 
no longer respects or is beholden to older generations or to tradition. So in a way, that widens the problem from simply death of God to a lack of respect for one's elders or ancestors, which I think is a broader and more, let's say, primitive notion. So, you know, to go back to Mark's point earlier about how violent times were even before that, like, so are we to take away from that that as long as courtesy is maintained, if we have the simple common courtesies of language and social interaction, the death of God is irrelevant? Or how do I put those two things together? I think that Bell is sort of blind on this point. There may be a way in which he's right with the primary drug dealers about this, but those kinds of little niceties seem to be all over Moss, Sugar, and Carson Wells. All three of them are actually pretty polite, even though they're shooting each other all the time. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. When Sugar kills the guy at the opening of the novel, when he puts the pneumatic cattle gun to the head of the guy whose car he wants, he says, sir, would you please step away from your car? <laughs> and then he kills him. Yeah. And then he explains, I just didn't want you to get blood on the car. Yeah. So, yeah. so he's plenty polite. Well, he's impersonating a police officer, so that's part of it. But yeah. That's true. I think that's right. But there are other cases in which he at least is, he's quite, Sugar here, is quite interested in respect and dignity. And so I would say one thing that Bell does not understand, and his account of the world as just a world of losing faith, I think the novel shows pretty clearly, does not encompass the new characters, at least Moss and Sugar. He doesn't understand them, which is not to say he doesn't understand anything, but he doesn't see these guys are making blood oath promises stronger than Bell was able to keep. They outdo him on that. Yeah. Yeah, but nobody understands Sugar either, though. But one thing we, we do understand about Sugar is that he's principled, right? Right. So I think that goes to your point, Eric. Yeah, I mean, this is the second half of Nietzsche's account of promises that Wes gave. The first half, which is the negative account that historically promising had to be enforced. Just the whole notion was driven into us through a long process of not just abstract morality, but the concrete apparatus of society coming down on people and torturing them and, you know, sort of using pain. And religion especially. Yes. But then the second part of that, of the, you know, so you ask the question, how can this persist after the death of God, is through this sort of making your will your own. So Shagur having principles, you know, is at least in line with an interpretation of Nietzsche, that he is he doesn't need society or religion to tell him what his principles are. He is the law unto himself. Right. I like uh, you know, that we're looking at this and we're talking about maybe looking at Ayn Rand in a couple episodes from now. There's these different versions of how easy it is to get something that is stated in Nietzsche, you know, that morality is the herd mentality. And so we need to gain this independence, but then come away with something monstrous. You know, that, that couldn't have been what Nietzsche meant. That's not what good Nietzsche scholarship tells you now. That's, you know, <laughs> as misguided as with the Nazis thought. So here, you know, we have in Sugar, a character that could have been a Nietzsche reader who didn't read uh, Walter Kaufman's uh, commentary. Right, absolutely. No Kaufman. <laughs> well, Moss and Chigurh are both equally emblematic, right? And this is part of the point you make in your talk, Eric. They're equally emblematic of people who are principled and keep their promises. Yeah, and that's, I think, Bell's own concern with promise-keeping and feeling that he somehow was untrue to himself. As he says um, to his Uncle Ellis, he didn't know he could steal his own life. Yeah. By failing to live up to his blood oath. He doesn't see, I don't think, that both Moss and especially Sugar are living in accordance with principles by which they live and die. 
Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You've always had what it takes to make it happen, and we know the right tools can make it easier. At Strayer University, we're always thinking about new ways to set you up for success. That's why we give you a brand new laptop when you enroll in a bachelor's program, so you can start off on the right foot and keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by chef.